When I started the work from home life in early 2020, the one promise that I made myself was that I was going to always dress as if I was going into the office. For a while it was fine, but after a while it just got so boring to look at myself on the hours and hours of video calls that I was on for work. So I started to experiment with different things, buy different patterned blue screen glasses, wear different shades of lipstick one week, try different eyeshadow techniques for the next week, anything to make looking at my own face more fun for me. Thankfully, one day I found this account on Instagram and I connected with a wonderful, wonderful human being named Bhavana Jane. I found out that she's a fashion designer. And so I checked out her line and her clothing, her designs were just so amazing. And it looked like an amazing fusion of like Eastern and Western designs. And I figured, let me try, let me try some of the pieces. So I ordered a, what is called the Reina top and it looks like a standard blouse. It was, it's a cream colored blouse, but the main highlight of this top are the sleeves and the sleeves look like they're short sleeves. They are covered in this fringe fabric, which actually looks like colorful feathers. And that's what really grabbed my attention. And when I got the shirt, I made sure that I wore it on the day where I had the most video calls because I wanted to show up in style. And I got so many compliments on my sleeve swag. And it was amazing. It was such a high energy day for me because with every call, people would always start off complimenting me on the top that I was wearing. Ever since then, I have been a huge fan of the Pav brand, which is a women's contemporary clothing brand based in Chicago, Illinois. And every piece in the line is inspired by the rich diversity of South Asian heritage. And it features sophisticated, flattering, ready to wear pieces that are tailored to fit the daily lives of women like me. And they're versatile enough to be worn wherever my day takes me, which for the most part is at home, but it helps me shift between worker Aisha and mom Aisha and chill Aisha. So if you want to check out the Reina top that I described earlier on, go to the show notes, pick up the discount code that I have in there, and then make your way to the shopbob.com website and check out the wonderful pieces that are on display there. Happy shopping! In this episode of A Story in a Chat, I'm going to be exploring a question that many of us were thinking, that some of us asked, but I don't think any of us got a really great answer to. And the question is, what would have the events look like on January 6th if the protesters at the US Capitol had not been white? I'm asking this question of Chris Cuff, who has spent almost 20 years in the law enforcement field and getting his really valuable perspective on the topic. So let's listen in. What do you think the response would have been from law enforcement professionals at the U.S. Capitol if the protesters weren't white? Ooh, uh, that's a loaded question. My personal opinion is that I think the response would have been vastly different. I think extremes in any direction is bad. When you allow for one circus, it opens the door for another. And 
where we are at in law enforcement, we're tired. But more importantly, just because we're tired doesn't mean we still don't have to do our jobs. And the last year, really, mm-hmm. uh, has shown us that there's a need for a shift, a seismic shift at that. And anytime you have a large crowd, a large demonstration, it really doesn't matter. The purpose of the demonstration happens to be law enforcement should be prepared. And my opinion, uh, based on what I saw last was Wednesday, was that we were just woefully ill-prepared. And as a whole, the profession took a loss. In your opinion, is it because there have been, there's been a lot of outcry, social media and in in person, people's conversations, things like that. We've heard in the headlines that they say the Capitol Police was just not prepared. They did not expect the crowds that came and and whatnot. Is that really believable in that situation? Without knowing the details of their planning, without knowing the details of their intelligence gathering, without knowing what other agencies were involved, because in a place like that, you'll find that, yes, Capitol Police might have specific jurisdiction over that specific location, but then there are so many other agencies that are involved. There's so much coordination that occurs uh, between law enforcement agencies in any large metropolitan area, D.C., being one of the more complicated ones. To specifically say that, to, to give a detailed answer as to why their response was the way that it was, until we're told, until we're told it's all subjected to our opinions and our feelings. Right. Now, you can, I don't think it's very difficult to, and the most obvious thing is obviously they weren't prepared. Obviously, there weren't enough personnel there. Obviously, the response prior to the rally and then ultimately what the takeover of the Capitol building, it, it just wasn't enough. And I can't think of, I'm sure there will be reasons and reasons for it. I just can't think of a good one. Right. Uh, and that's that is a piece of it that is it's frustrating because since May, law enforcement across the country has dealt with protests, riots, or some combination of the two. And so to have known that you're going to have a large a large demonstration at a very critical time when all of Congress will be in one building to not have personnel there, even if it was the most peaceful event in the world, is irresponsible. But again, without knowing all of the details uh, of what that planning looked like and and the background behind that, it's all a guess at this point. I can understand that. And so Again, pulling from the headlines and pulling from everything that I'm seeing, what everyone is comparing this incident to, because logically we want to compare apples to apples. So the closest thing to an apple that we have for this situation is the Black Lives Matter protests that happened at the Capitol. And we've seen images, we've heard stories about how the police seem to be very prepared for that potentially even over-prepared, right? Depending on the narratives that we hear. So then it's hard to not 
pull conclusions from that and then to conclude that there is racism at play here. What is your opinion there? Was there enough information there versus what they had now? Or do you think that it was the same level, but there must have been a breakdown somewhere? I'm, I'm really trying to pull for a rational explanation of this. <laughs> I'm glad that you said rational because I, I don't think there is one. It makes a lot of sense to compare the response, to make that apples to apples comparison. How, how do you not? It mm -hmm. was five, six months ago. Right. Uh, uh, I think it would be intellectually dishonest to not make that apples to apples comparison. Uh, what I think my personal opinion is there's, in, back in May, during the Black Lives Matter uprising, for lack of a better term, there was a seismic shift in our country's culture as it relates to race relations being at the, at the base of all of this and then the face of race relations being the relationship between minority communities and the police. And the threshold incidents, meaning the uses of force and more and the, the shootings specifically were the tipping points. And when the first domino, when the domino dropped and now the, the, the dam has been broken and now the, what occurred was there was a reckoning in terms of the feeling within many minority communities of voice is now the, the, there was a, now a voice in a way that they didn't have before. And it became now socially acceptable for mainstream America to acknowledge what people have been saying for a long time, acknowledge how people have been feeling for a long time. And this is without getting into the details of every single incident. It's this undercurrent feeling, this undercurrent of uneasiness, this undercurrent of and, and, and what I think is a desire to have uh, a desire of the community to have a relationship with the police that's not there or and not, not everywhere. And it doesn't mean that uh, there haven't been efforts to fix or change that, but it really has not been, we haven't gotten there yet. Right. Because we haven't gotten there yet, there was the dam broke. Yeah. And ultimately what we're talking about here is a culture shift. And how that relates to last Wednesday was the general attitudes and on a macro level, the general attitudes towards the protest in May versus the protest we saw last week were this is more dangerous and thought to be much more of a threat than this over here. And so the responses were muted. And because you had a muted response, you saw what we got. And, and even talking to some of my own colleagues and my own family members, go off on a, on a tangent on this one, is you know, May, June, July, for me, were by far the hardest months I've ever had as a police officer because it was, and I've been through some pretty harrowing at times scenarios, but those three months were some of the hardest months because it was 
or at least for me, I can't speak for every other officer, but the one of the few times, first time where I had to reckon and really be a bridge between my family, my friends, and my profession. Because prior to that, you know, it was always, hey, Chris, he's the cop. There's my family. There's my friends. And within our, within those three circles, I generally got along. And in the family and friend side, the folks that were anti-cop or the folks that really just didn't would have a, a, a more natural tension with law enforcement, those folks would be considered like those outliers. That's a given. What occurred in those three months were everybody else who were generally supporters of me as an individual, all of a sudden, there was now an opportunity for them to now be very vocal about their opinions of the profession. And because I was their one bridge to the profession, all of that was like an avalanche of emotion and feelings and just a desire for conversations what we're having right now happened all at once. Yeah. Whereas some of my other colleagues, they didn't get that at all. And so every day it was, I need you to understand over here. I need you to understand over here. And it's, it was back and forth and it was, it was tough. And I'm a pretty strong supporter of the profession. And the reason why is because I know that there's a lot of things that you know, friends and family, and especially when you pull only from social media or mm-hmm. only from mainstream news, you really don't get the whole story. You definitely don't get a lot of context. And so when, you, when context is lacking, perspective can be very different. And without that perspective, can you really get some understanding? And last Wednesday, or I'm sorry, on Wednesday, what happened there really put into focus everything that occurred in May, everything that had occurred in any other time where there's been in, in a, uh, a cultural uprising with the underlying issue being race relations or civil rights or whatever title you want to put on it. And it's tough. It's not easy. What you said was very important that we haven't seen the shift. There are what I call grassroots efforts, right, to build that relationship between the community that the police police and then with the police system themselves. So there will be those grassroots efforts. There will be efforts to make the police part of the community that they work in. But again, those are small grassroots efforts. What are your thoughts when you hear things like their systemic racism in the policing system? Okay, so uh, usually when I get these kind of questions, I, I have to clarify in that policing itself is nationally, Across the board, the role of the police officer is the same, but law enforcement gets very local very quickly. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is this, the way that law enforcement is done in say San Francisco is very, is similar, but very different than the way it might be done in LA and, or the way that it's done in Texas or in New York or in Florida or wherever, or the central part of the country, things are very different. Why? Because you have different cultures, you have different cities, you have different needs and wants and and histories, all those things. And then even when you get down to, let's just use Los Angeles as an example, there are 44 independent cities in Los Angeles, 
44 independent police police departments in Los Angeles, the LAPD and the LA County Sheriff's Department included, but with those 44 small departments, you now have 44 different department cultures, 44 different relationships between one city here and the next city over there. If you go up to San Francisco or that area, it's the same way. You've got San Francisco, you've got Hayward, you've got Dublin and San Jose and Oakland and all those places are very similar, but each city is very different, especially as it relates to their relationship with their police department. And so as a officer in LA, I can give you my opinion, but it's all from the perspective of a police officer who works in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. or in the Los Angeles area. And I can tell you about the different programs and and the things that we've done at my agency, but that's not universal mm-hmm. across the board. And so when there are issues that become national issues and you talk about policing on a national level, it then becomes very, it, it's not as, it's not cookie cutter because there, there, there aren't cookie cutter answers because every community has its own individual needs. And, so, and that's one of the reasons why I got involved, like more heavily involved in uh, political consulting. And because one of my, I, I would say one of my specialties is identifying and identifying individuals who would be good for local office. And by identifying individuals that would be good for local offices, helping them take their resumes and create platforms for themselves so that they can put themselves into positions to have the voice, to have that control. And what I mean by that is this, is your local city council, your local school uh, board of supervisors, your local school district, the judges that you choose, the district attorneys in which you elect, those are the folks that have much more direct responsibility and more direct ability to affect or to make changes or affect the police departments that police your communities. So despite what's happening nationally, all of that is really a sideshow to who's your police chief. And the question is, all right, if you don't know who your own police chief is, then who's the person that hires him? Well, it's likely a city manager. Okay, then who who hires the city manager? Oh, that would be your city council. Okay, then who's your city council people? That would be the people that you vote for that in most communities, most people skip over that. So now, does that make sense? If anything, it's mind blowing because my question was just like, is this one silo? Is there systemic racism here? But what you have been spelling out is that this is really impacted by a much broader system. There's an overlay of that. Because law enforcement is one piece of a bigger system. Now, are we a large piece of that system? Of course we are. Absolutely we are. In in any city, most law enforcement agencies are responsible for sometimes 40, maybe 50% of any city budget. Mm -hmm. And so there's a reason for that. There's a, and I don't know if we want to get into that, but when you say a systemic problem, when you're talking about the system, first we have to talk about the entire system. If we don't understand the entire system, If, even if all you did was change leadership at the law enforcement agency, you really haven't addressed the system. That yeah, makes sense. It does. 
And so what we've seen, and I can just say in LA County, is the, the shift has been an awakening from the citizenry and their understanding of, okay, what is the bigger system? Yeah. Where can I be, where can I as an individual have a voice in that bigger system? And then where can I be effective? And then taking their, those efforts and, and focusing those efforts on the things that they do have some level of control over. So now with this perspective of this larger system, what are your thoughts then when you hear statements like defund the police? I think that it is a, one, I, I don't like that term at all, at all. And, and the reason why I don't like that term uh, is because it, it's a misnomer. And what I mean by that is the idea that, the idea of simply taking money away from your local law enforcement agency and applying it somewhere else on a very simple level shows a lack of understanding of the system. And that lack of understanding can, and oftentimes is detrimental. And it's not because me as a police officer and a representative of, of an agency, it's not because I want more money so we can go buy more cars and more equipment and more guns or whatever people assume that we do with, with our budgets. It really shows a lack of understanding of really how local governance works. I hear all the time, and I'm sure you've heard it too, is, well, if we take the money from here and then we can apply it to here, and then long-term, as a community, we would be better. Well, okay. And that sounds great to me as a civilian. Ah. I'm like, that makes perfect sense. It sounds so, fantastic. Then what would you turn that to? I'm not going to ask you to come up with a marketing term right now, but if, right. it's not, if the solution isn't taking money away from the police, defunding the police, what do you think a solution could be? I think first, and if it, within any community is one thing, the individual community needs to, needs to know and understand what exactly are their needs. Because not every community is the same. The issues in San Jose are different than maybe some of the issues in Hayward mm -hmm. or issues in Torrance might be you know, a, a lot different than, you know, the issues in Compton. So first, well, let's understand what your needs are. I had a conversation with uh, someone about this yesterday. This was in an, another city down here in LA. And the guy told me that he wanted to, wanted to get rid of the sheriff's department and bring in their own local police department. And then he also wanted social services and he wanted park services and he wanted all those things. And, and the first question that I asked was, I said, okay, if you, if we're talking about the park specifically, I said, okay, who's going to go to a park where there's not a perception of safety? Mm -hmm. What good is a, a parks and recs program if the park itself is unsafe? It's not going to be as effective as you, it's not going to be very effective. The, I then asked the question, I said, is there a way to use redevelopment uh, and revitalization of local communities by doing that does that solve some of your law enforcement problems he didn't really have an answer for that and said okay if you have a brown space and you put a starbucks on that brown space that starbucks is going to bring that place that starbucks will attract other businesses and when you attract other businesses now all of a sudden an area that had a brown space and a liquor store now has a starbucks and maybe a a Trader Joe's or whatever else happens to come in there, if there were crime issues on that street, what naturally happens? 
those crime issues start to dissipate. And you did all of that, or at least in that, in this particular example, all of that, the crime problem was solved from a, from redeveloping the area and the police weren't involved in that at all. And I know I got a little bit off topic on that, but what I'm getting at is this, is simply saying that I'm going to take money from, take money away from the police and allocate it somewhere else, local government, it's all a bureaucracy. So you can take more money from one bureaucracy and throw it into another bureaucracy if that other bureaucracy isn't set up to address the issues in which you want it to address. And if there's no understanding of exactly how that works, then it's all for naught. This may or may not be a secret, but during COVID, every city in at least the state of California took a financial hit. Why? Because sales tax revenue dropped. Well, if every city took a financial hit, and this was in March, and most fiscal years end in June or July, between March and July, that money that those cities lost, it's, it's going to come out of somewhere. And so I think conveniently, because it made sense in May when all of these cities said, hey, because the, the public was demanding, we're looking for some level of action, it's defund the police. Okay, we have cities coming in to defund our police $5 million or $100 million over here or whatever the number happens to happen to be. Well, what no one said was they were likely going to have to do that anyway because the cities had lost so much money because of COVID. That money wasn't coming in anyway. So as a political gesture, you said, okay, we're going to defund by $5 million, but that's $5 million that was saved in just retirements and people leaving early or some other measure, but you really didn't change anything structurally about the local law enforcement agency or maybe the social service agency within those cities. Everything that I'm saying might sound complicated and I'm saying it like this for a reason. It is complicated. It's not simple. So then what you're saying is that any gesture at that time that was made to, I, I believe the mayor here at London Breed, that there were some actions taken on defunding the police at yeah. that time. So it wasn't, it could have been that they were doing it because of the sales tax hit, because of COVID. So they were like, you know what? We'll go ahead and give this gesture. It'll make me look great politically. It'll make it look like we're meeting social justice demands. And a lot of places that did occur. In some, in some places, maybe there was more, the, the gestures were more authentic. I, I don't know. I can only surmise that maybe in some places they were more authentic. But again, if the issue, the underlying issue is the desire for the community to have a better relationship with this police department or really for a desire for the community to get the type of policing that they want, then money by itself doesn't solve that problem. But what about when we see, this is again, pulling from headlines and what I've seen on the news, there are some really expensive gear that we've seen with the police in, in response to these protests. This is military grade equipment, which I hear is really expensive. 
so then as a civilian again that's why the defund the police statement makes sense to me i'm like hell yeah i'm like they seem like they're balling over there they've got tanks and things that you would go and use in in during wartime but here they are they're using this gear to police civilian communities what about that perception my answer to that is again it's a lack of understanding of how it actually works the majority of the money that goes to any agency police department, fire department, parks and rec, you name it. The majority of those funds go to salaries and pensions. And the amount of funds that are discretionary, and when I say discretionary, those are the funds that are used to make equipment purchases, to maintain fleets, to pay the gas bills and the light bills and all those things. Those, those numbers are very low in comparison to actually paying for the people to be there by way of their salaries, their pensions, their benefits, those things. And the equipment that any agency might have, okay, so say you, you get rid of a barricade or you get rid of a, a helicopter, those are usually up, those, those go up for grabs early or a boat or whatever it happens to be, that $200,000 piece of equipment doesn't pay, that, that $200,000 piece of equipment might pay for one social worker. It might pay for when you add in, of course, that social worker's salary and benefits and pension and all those things. And so it feels good. It feels good to go, oh man, we, we stuck it to them. We got rid of the, the, that Bearcat, but now that agency doesn't have that piece of armor. When they might potentially need it, that agency is now, that agency might now not have a piece of equipment that they need and often those pieces, those the things that you see on the news, like so the bear catch or the armor and all of those things, those are low frequency pieces of equipment that are used in the most generally the most serious of situations. And, uh, again, your average citizen just has no clue how expensive it is to run a town, and now people are paying attention and. And I don't, I'm not opposed to that. I think it's good that people are now engaged. I think it's good that people are now asking questions. I think it's good that people are aware of the decisions that the people that they elect are, they're aware of what those decisions are and are now have a say. And, and, and the truth is they've always had a say. They just never really engaged into engaged. Now they are. And so as you ask me these questions, I'm not defensive at all. It is, in fact, I'm glad that you are because it's nice to be able to have the ability to explain why do we need this or, or why do we need that or why don't we have X, Y, and Z. And that never gets asked. Why don't right. we have a helicopter or a boat or a, <laughs> a horse or you know, whatever it happens to be. Another area that I'm glad that I have your time here to explore further. So just pulling from your experiences, just being a human being, but also with your vast experience in the law enforcement professional, when we, and when I saw the George Floyd video, even though I didn't want to, I tried so hard not to see that video, but it was impossible to do it. As a civilian, when I saw it, the, I will say question number five, in my head, maybe even number three was, but what about those other cops around him? Are they complicit? They have to be, they didn't do anything to stop him. 
So when you, with your experience, when you saw that video, I guess I'm asking you to help me understand the minds of those cops that were around and didn't do anything. Because that's the first thing that we hear. They didn't do anything. So of course, like what's wrong with them? I will start with this is I am a human first. I am a black man first. Law enforcement is the job that I do. It's not who I am. It is a title. My, my title is just that. It's a title. It's, a, it's police or not. We're not robots. We're not monolithic thinkers. We are people first. And I think and I know sometimes the general public forgets that. So I start with that to answer the specific question about the thought process of the an officer during a critical situation. I can only speak from my own personal experience and the, the situations that I've been in. And my answer to what those cops were thinking is I don't know. I know I know enough to know that I don't know at all. I know what I saw. I know how I felt when I saw it. I didn't want to watch that video either. It was been two or three days. And when I watched it, some of the things that came to mind for me had less to do with the, the specific actions of the officers and on a more human level, which is if I'm there and someone is in medical distress, then I have to do something. And when I didn't see that happen, that is what caused me as a human first to start asking questions. And, and it, it just felt, it felt wrong. Now, no one understand, I guess, the dynamics of the law enforcement culture. Again, every agency is different. Every agency has its own internal culture. They have their own you know, pecking orders of, of, of individual officer level, of their influence level. By simply watching that video, I don't know who's who. I think later on we learned that you know, at least one of the guys was a trainee had been on for four days or, or something, some really short period of time, whereas one was a training officer and, and another guy had been on for a couple of years. I'd be guessing to, I'd be guessing to, to tell you what any one of those other guys were thinking other than maybe the one who was most prominent on the video. And for some of these specific, some of these specific cases, especially this one, because it's still in litigation, I, I can't give you a definitive answer on that. I just know that as a human, felt icky. <laughs> kind of yeah. a child's term, but that's how it felt. On TV, I've watched so many police shows. I had an unhealthy addiction to law and order. <laughs> Well, and what is always glamorized is this kind of police code that we stick it out for each other. I got your back, you got my back, which I think people then rationalize that's why we see such behavior that everyone's just, oh, there's just a few bad apples. But then why aren't the good apples and standing up and, and talking against them? So then in my mind, I'm connecting the two. I'm like, but there's this police code that I got your back, you got mine, and we have to stick it out with each other. That's what's leading to this silence of the good apples. So I guess two-part question, is that code real from your many years of experience? 
And then number two, if it is real, is that kind of what we're seeing in action? Police code, no. Is there a camaraderie? Is there a brotherhood? Is there a, a brotherhood or you know, slash sisterhood? Yes, absolutely. And the reason, I mean, there are multiple reasons for that, but I would think that the most the underlying reason for that is because we work in a job where every day isn't guaranteed. I was a brand new sergeant. One of my mentors told me, he said, every day come to work and smile as much as you can and make that first interaction the most pleasant interaction you could possibly make it because the next call might be your last. And so when, no different than the military, or really any other paramilitary organization is when, or even a sports team, when you are in, when you are, when the people, when the guy or gal who sits next to you can be and often is responsible for your safety, for your life, and in certain situations, there is a natural bond that occurs. It doesn't mean that it's perfect because like any profession or any organization that involves humans, <laughs> there will not be perfection, but that bond is there because of that. Now, other in some places, that bond or that code, for if that's the term we want to use, can be corrupted. And there are you know, more than enough, I'm not going to sit here and say that there aren't examples of officers who have uh, perverted that bond for whatever reason. I'm not saying that hasn't happened, it, it, it has. But do I think that that is the reason why we have imperfect policing? No, that's not the reason why we have imperfect policing. We have imperfect policing because police are made up of humans and humans are imperfect. What is one sentiment, one message that you want to leave us with? I, I think the, or at least for me, is, and I know a lot of my comrades feel the same way, is... Policing is the profession that we do. It's not who we are as people. It is, it is our desire uh, is to do what we do to improve our communities. And the willingness to, I won't say reach out, but there is a genuine willingness uh, to improve our relationship. And I'm talking on a macro level. Improve our relationship with our communities, it's there. How to get there is, I guess that's the part that's up for debate, but ultimately is, ultimately we, we got into this job because we care. And knowing full well that this is a profession that could take our lives. And I think that part, the human element, that's the part that's missing. And it's not from the police to the community, it's both ways. And at least for me, that is one of my driving factors. And that's what kind of helps keep me, keep me pushing even when it's hard or even when, it's, when things look grim and it's difficult. It's, that, it's knowing that the vast majority of the community wants the same things that I want. And getting there is, that's the work. And it's an ongoing uh, and evolving thing will always be that. But the minute we stop talking is the minute progress stops being made. Chris, I, I can't thank you enough for taking this time to speak with me. Thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Story in a Chat with me, your host, Aisha Iqbal. But before signing off, I do want to take a moment to reflect on this conversation and try to bring it back to my everyday. So for a good portion of the day, that Wednesday, I think, I was not watching the news. It was a work day for me and I was in the middle of back-to-back video calls for work. And it wasn't until probably two or three in the afternoon here, California time, that I tapped into the news to see what was going on because I kept hearing bits and pieces and conversations from the people that I was speaking to. And I was like, you know what? Let me just take my blinders off and take a look at what's happening. And when I saw the video footage from the protests happening at the US Capitol, at first, I think my reaction was one of, okay, here's another protest. Let's see what happens. I guess the gravity of the event had not really taken hold of me yet. I guess this is what desensitization looks like for me, that I just am viewing what's happening in life without really reacting to it in a way that is warranted. So number one, the fact that this protest was happening at the U.S. Capitol and that people were breaking into the building, it didn't faze me. But One thing that was starting to have an impact on me was the fact that when I realized that it was all white faces that I was seeing on the video footage, and it was these white faces that were breaking into the U.S. Capitol building, more than that, I wasn't seeing any footage of people being beaten, people being you know, tear gas or sprayed in their face. I wasn't seeing kind of like military gear. And these are the images that I had become used to seeing during the summer of 2020 during the Black Lives Matter protests. And that is what stayed with me for that day. And that is what I started thinking about. Like, why does the response look different from what I have seen so much just a few months prior? And that was really the genesis of this conversation and why I reached out to Chris to, to get his opinion on this because it was it couldn't have only been me who had noticed this, right? And, and again, it's every, the right to protest. I believe in that. To show your frustration or your anger at something, we have that right. It was just this difference in response from the law enforcement officials there that really left me just befuddled. I think the one takeaway that I am taking away from myself is this feeling of desensitization, is why it took me so long to really realize the gravity of this. And what it's showing me is that I can't keep turning a blind eye to what's happening all around me just because it makes me feel a type of way that I don't want to feel like. So I don't yet have the the right next step for me, but at least this level of awareness is something that I'm happy that I now have. So please tune in next time when I continue to explore questions just like this in the world all around us by speaking to the people who have a whole lot more information than I do so I can learn from them and then share these learnings with you. Until then, keep your mind clear and your heart open so you can hear your own truth. Also, if you have enjoyed any part of this conversation, please consider writing a review saying as much and share this podcast out as a gift to others in your circle. Toodles!